Maggie Alfonsi, it's very good to see you. I, it looks like you might be in a hotel room in France because you're there covering the World Cup for ITV. I am covering the World Cup for ITV. Unfortunately, I'm not in France at the moment. I'm actually in central London, <laughs> central London, um, in in an office that I work at as well. So um, I'm I am heading out to France later on in the tournament, not but not during the pool stages. Well, I'm sure I saw you. I did see you for the England game against Argentina in a studio. Obviously, it looked quite virtual. But I thought you were. I thought you guys were there. Were you not there? How good that virtual um, studio is. So we are actually in in central London for for most of the pool stages, um, but obviously commentators are out there, and then we'll go out there quarterfinals onwards but it's so good and that's how good the background looks it looks like we're literally on the top of a roof with the with the with the, the eiffel tower in the background but no we're not there i mean a lot of us went we went out beforehand um so we understand the heat that is that a lot of the players are having to uh experience but um yeah not out there yet i've worked in tv for years and years on and off and even I didn't realise that. I mean, as I said, I knew there was some sort of green screen involved or something clever going on, but I assumed that that was still in Paris. Anyway, very clever indeed. It's interesting what you said about the heat, because I don't think I've ever seen rugby players as out on their feet as after that Wales-Fiji game last night. Reese Summit, I mean, he he he. maybe I'm getting this wrong, but he looked fairly relieved that he didn't have to tackle Radrada right at the end. I mean, maybe it was on the other side of the pitch. Maybe it was a, a trick of the, the lens. But yeah, these guys, they just look shattered. And playing rugby is hard enough, but playing it in that sort of heat, particularly when you're not used to it, is, well, it's tough. It's incredibly tough. So I went out there the day before the World Cup kicked off and I was there during the middle of the day and the heat was, it was ridiculous. So when you look at the, if I go back to the France game as well, the France versus New Zealand game, and you could see the, their jerseys pretty much drenched in sweat. Um, and these water breaks are needed, aren't they, really, for the players? So I, I take my hat off to these these individuals that are playing. It's hard work. And that, that Wales-Fiji game, I mean, how... <laughs> that was a, I, I, if, that, if, if, if Red Radwell had caught that ball, I mean, it would be a different conversation today. But it just shows that, the quality of the rugby is, is definitely there, especially that final game on, on of the three days we've seen so far. It's been exciting to watch. The temperatures hasn't been great, but the players are literally having to crack on with it. And I can tell you now, it's been some, it's been some good watching, some good viewing. It was such a contrast that game last night compared to the England game. And I was having gone to two of the England's warm up games and been really disappointed and concerned about the state of. English men's rugby, you couldn't help but be thrilled by that victory over Argentina and the difference in intensity compared to the warm-up games. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised about that. Also, the fitness looked really good. It looked as though they're coming to the ball at the right time. But the difference between that game, which was such a sort of intense struggle of defence and willpower and forward resilience particularly in the light of the sending off of Tom Curry so early on. The difference between that and the free-flowing, sometimes even a bit scrappy, I mean, it was end-to-end stuff, the free-flowing nature of the Wales-Fiji game. I think we needed that Wales-Fiji game. I think the tournament needed it because it showed you the beauty of rugby when the ball is passed out wide and people run. You're, you're absolutely right. So if we talk about all the games that have taken place over the, you know, the Friday to the Sunday... 
there were some good games, and you, you can't deny that. But I don't think we saw the we didn't see it light up. We didn't see some amazing tries be scored and all of a sudden, you know, us be in shock. But I felt like you touched it there. When Wales Fiji played, it felt from the outset, it was almost, and I hate to use that term when it comes to Fiji, but it felt like sevens rugby. Everyone was just throwing the ball around. Um, yeah, there were knock-ons. You know, yes, there were penalties, infringements. Some would say the Welsh got it, um, got treated fairly fairly leniently and didn't get more cards but it was it was so enjoyable to watch and I have to say you know when you're watching a game and it's you reach the 77th minute and you're just thinking I still don't know who's going to win this I that's what it felt like and it was so nice to watch a game where you could feel there was a level of jeopardy unpredictability where you'd probably say over the games prior to that even the France West New Zealand game in the second half in particular, it was just, it was quite one-sided. So it was nice to watch a game that was slightly unpredictable. England-Argentina game, I was just thrilled, like you touched on, that England played well. And and by that, I mean, backs against the wall, 14 men, just have to graft it out. Ford, step up, drop us some goals. And, and it was, it was, it was incredible. We haven't seen their attack though. That's, the, that's the, where all the questions are coming right now. But right now, I'm pleased that England have won a game. And I'm pleased that we've seen some good rugby with the likes of Wales and Fiji. I was watching the game, actually, with someone who was not a rugby fan. But I could see that she was really getting into it as Fiji were, were attacking. So, And we, if we want to draw more people into rugby, then the excitement of a free-flowing game, I think, is really important. OK, we've actually got to start these 20 questions because this has basically been a, a preamble. So you are a World Cup winner. You didn't win the World Cup in 2006 or 2010, but you came back, having considered giving up the game in about 2012, you came back and you won, you beat Canada in the final, you ended that run of New Zealand victories. That obviously was an incredibly special moment in your career, but there have been other special moments too. And now you work as a pundit for ITV, you stand alongside Sir Clive Woodward and Johnny Wilkinson and Lawrence Delalio, they stand alongside you. And you're also a columnist at The Telegraph. You're an ins- inspirational speaker. You do a whole range of things. You've, you've worked for the RFU, for the Rugby Football Union. So you've got so much to offer the game and so many insights, I think, and I hope will be really valuable. I want us to start, though, by asking you, what is it like, even nine years on, being a World Cup winner? And does the sort of sense of pride and achievement dim with time or is that something you just have gives you a warm fuzzy feeling whenever you think about it I would I would go with the latter it definitely gives me a warm fuzzy feeling just because you have this every year the anniversary comes around where you remember when you won that world cup with your team and it just sort of makes you think oh my god we worked so hard to get to that point and I'm really proud of the team the the management you know Everything that we did to get to that point, to win it, felt so special. It's the same when you talk to the likes of Lawrence Delalio, Sir Clive Woodward and Johnny Wilkinson, because it's been 20 years. I mean, that it's crazy to think that there are a lot of kids who weren't bored when, you know, Johnny Wilkinson did that drop goal. But it they still have their moments. And they when they talk about winning that World Cup in 2003, you can see their face light up. And that's what I feel with our achievements back in uh, 2014, which still feels like miles, you know, ages ago, but it, you still have the feelings still resonate with you, which is so nice. And you, you really highlighted it. We had lost World Cups before that, 
and to lose in a World Cup in 2006 in the final, to lose another World Cup in 2010 in the final, but that one was at home, it almost made 2014 even more special. You know, epic failure, epic failure, then success. And that's what made us really feel like we deserved that win. Um, I just hope that our team can do that again in the next World Cup in terms of women's rugby is in 2025. I don't know whether this sums up the way in which women's sport is developing, but I grew into the England Women's Football World Cup progress, their, their progress through the recent tournament to the final. And, you know, you feel it in your gut when they concede a goal. And I, to my shame, I'm a relatively recent convert to some women's team sports I've started to get into women's cricket really this summer I mean I remember watching them in the World Cup final I think it was probably in 2017 and had my phone under the table when I was at a lunch party and desperately hoping we were going to win but you just if someone like me who and I'm 43 and I love sports so much and go to so much live sport if I if I'm only just coming to it then it probably says something not very good about me but it also maybe is representative that more audiences are now coming. You look at the number of people who are watching that Women's World Cup football tournament, both in the stadiums and also on television. And there's no doubt that the landscape is changing. There's, there's still further change. But, you know, Wembley can sell out now. It does It does sell out, doesn't it, for England women's football games. And that is a really, really good thing. I mean, looking at the highlights of your World Cup win in 2014, when you provided the, the scoring pass for one of the tries, I couldn't believe just the fact that it, it wasn't a particularly big stadium in France, wasn't it? And there were empty seats. Now, I think the last World Cup, which was in New Zealand, that changed, didn't it? So just if you could, better than I have, explain to us the progress that is being made in women's team sports, particularly though in rugby, and how, how much more needs to change? So I would say the progress in women's sport has has been fairly rapid. It's almost it's, it's gone slow, slow, plateaued out. And then, so when I say slow, slow, in 2010, we played a World Cup against New Zealand in England. And in the final, we had, there, were, there was almost like about 14,000. And at that time, that was, you know, fairly, fairly decent. And then, or less than that, sorry. Uh, and then we went on to, 2014 and the crowd like you said there big stadium in France but still we had empty seats so the but there was still interest so it so it went from almost like slow and steady 2010 then with the Olympics in 2012 female athletes were doing incredibly well and then all of a sudden the, the cricket done well netball had done well rowing etc hockey so it was getting better and better people started to take more interest in in, in women's sport and then all of a sudden we hit our World Cup in 2014 and there was this like sudden, oh, wow, so women can play rugby. That's interesting. And then it, it almost like started off the ball moving forward. And when it comes to women's sport, I say it's quite a lot, you know, we, we sort of influence each other. So when women's football does well, all of a sudden it, it, it lifts the interest for people to go, oh, maybe I'll watch, you know, netball or maybe I'll watch women's rugby, hockey, etc. So it has a real positive effect. So when the Lionesses are doing well, I'm like, that's brilliant because it, it means people will go, maybe I might watch something else that's re relevant to women's sport. So it has been rapid over the last five 
maybe five, six, seven years, I'd, I'd say it's been a, a steady increase. And and what we need to keep doing though is staying on top of that. And actually, like most fans, they like success. So when we're doing well, whatever team it may be, people start to follow. And actually, Matt, you've raised a really good point. You started to show an interest. The, the challenge we've had is actually we have a lot of men, believe it or not, watch women's sport, but how do we get more women watching women's sport? That's probably been our biggest challenge over the last few years. And if we can increase those numbers, I think we'd have significantly more viewing figures and audiences. It does seem to be happening in football. I mean, little girls now and older girls are really getting into the lionesses, aren't they? So if I'm right about that, and I think I am, there's a question for rugby, how to get more female participation in the sport you're, you're absolutely right so when you're watching the lionesses play they say obviously when watching them at Wembley watching them obviously in the recent world cup the fans when they, I love it when the camera just like pans across all the audiences and you're like oh my god there's a young girl there's a woman it, there's a man there's a, there's a boy it's just fantastic it's just it, they I mean they tick off every sort of element of having a range of people come and watch and see family families come and watch rugby is, is is following so you know rugby during the six nations the women's six nations they played against france at twickenham and what was great is we had fifty-eight thousand people come to watch that game which is the, the the greatest record or the largest record we've ever had in terms of coming to watch a standalone women's rugby match so normally we usually would play as double header um before the men um or after the men and, and and that would get us a good crowd but to do it on our own and to have sugar babes at half time perform so what was great about that is that you looked at the the um the fans the people in the, in the stands and there was real it was families like you said it was more more um there was girls there was boys it was a really lovely atmosphere so what we need to try and do is keep keep pushing that and the best way to do that is is also trying to open up our, our level of entertainment. And by that, I mean, I, I talked about Sugar Bays being there. That that was quite significant, you know, combining the level of entertainment of music with those fans that maybe might not be interested in rugby, but really like Sugar Babes. And then and then bringing that and combining that to, to sport. And we're seeing that quite a lot now in, in women's sport in particular. They're, the, you know, halftime performances or the pre-match performances are some big, well-known artists which actually help add to you know the interest of fans wanting to come and watch one of the things that i've noticed maggie is the coverage has changed in in the written press and and maybe there's i think there's probably much greater coverage on radio on tv but when you now look at say the telegraph sports website and i look at that a lot you don't necessarily know and it's probably true of the bbc sport website as well you don't necessarily know whether the article when they when they talk about england whether it's cricket or football or rugby you don't necessarily know immediately whether they're talking about the men's game or the women's game and that has to be a positive right it, it's not just about though it is important having women such as yourself involved in punditry being columnists in national newspapers it's also simply the volume of column inches that are now devoted to women's sports you, you you're right because um i mean there, there used to be a stat that used to say uh 0.1 i think it was of the coverage in the papers was dedicated to women's sport i think it wasn't just papers it was just media full stop which was you know that 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 is <laughs> really not a lot and now you feel, 
I feel like I can I can now look at the back pages of um, of a newspaper or I can you know log on and and look at uh, sport online and there there is a there's a piece there's always a piece about an athlete or a piece about performance um, and and sometimes that, that ebbs and flows naturally so during during like big competitions like the men's world cup right now there'll probably be less coverage about women's rugby but what is positive is that it's starting to now be embedded into the 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 papers the the radio the TV coverage, like when you talked about TV coverage, I think that's that has definitely improved over the last few years. Not just the the fact that it's on TV, but the quality of the coverage. So I guess previously you might see, you know, there'll probably be about a certain amount of cameras at a stadium, and you wouldn't get the best views. And then that sounds really odd, but when you watch, for example, watching the men's rugby world cup, and some of the camera footage is is pretty pretty cool. And that, that's saying now you're starting to see that in the women's yeah. game. So it's, it's a really good product that you're selling. And also commentary. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where you'd have had a whole load of grumpy men who'd have been furious that there was the, 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 the broadcaster dared to have a female commentator. Now it's become the norm, hasn't it? You think of cricket. I, I think of cricket or football as well, of course. And it's just, as I say, it's just no, it's, it's normal now. And it's possible that the quality of the commentators has gone up because it's become more normal. So you know, it, 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 there's a possibility that this is just a virtuous circle. It's interesting, isn't it, when you talk about the the changes in pundits, commentators, analysis. It's really, it's really has gone through its, its evolution. So you know, I, I like cricket. I've, I've really got into cricket, and I'm good friends with Ebony Rayford Brent, uh, who does a lot of the cricket, and, and Aisha as well, actually. And you, you sort of, you see that that is the norm now. They present, they commentate, um, and then you look at football. You know, Alex got another good friend. She's she's across all coverage, uh, and it's it, it. People don't. People still question. Yeah, you know, sadly, you've got people who are always going to question and are always going to say, "What does a woman know about the men's version of the game?" It's funny, isn't it? Because in the world of women's sport, when we have some of the men on the women's game, they're almost celebrated because they're like, wow, well done for, for working on the women's game. But when a woman works on the men's game, it's almost like, what does she know? <laughs> and So do you know what? That's changing. You're still going to get negativity. I see it all the time. But at the same time, I'm I'm really pleased that broadcasters are going doesn't matter. We still want we still want an Alex Scott. We still want an Ebony Rayford Brent. We still want a Maggie Alfonsi, etc. To to work on the men's version of the game, regardless of what people say or may criticise. You know, we need diversity of thought. We need diversity of opinions because it isn't just about appealing to the people who are currently in the sport. It's about opening up the 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 audience. We need to get new people to follow the sport. And if you've got a range of different types of people, people sort of gravitate towards them. We've just seen, haven't we, a significant shift in cricket where women are now being paid the same as men, if I've understood this correctly, for their appearances. You look at your autobiography, which is one of the reasons why we're here today, talking to each other, winning the fight, and you describe your kind of shock, really, and surprise in 2006 when you went to your first World Cup in Canada. and you were sort of hoping or expecting that there would be people greeting you at the airport in Canada. And after you got to the final and lost in New Zealand, you thought there might be some people to welcome you back other than players' families. You thought you might not be flying economy class. You thought you might get your, you know, you might be in a hotel, just the England players and maybe other people, but not the other teams. And yet the teams are 
think you said we're all in the same hotel and it was sort of either on a motorway or near a motorway and you described the balcony which was covered in in pigeon poop that really emphasizes just how far the game and women how far the women's game had to come and I mean it's quite shocking isn't it because that was 2006 so yeah, I look back at the new Labour years, and, and of course that, that they were, they were that, that's in Britain. But I look back at that period and think that was a time that welcomed in a lot of a lot more inclusivity. And yet, the way that you were treated as an England international rugby player was very, very different to how the men were treated. I'm not blaming Tony Blair for that, obviously, or New Labour, but it's it's just it just jars to me reading that passage. That was nine years after New Labour came in with this great sort of sense of hope, and yet and yet there were so so many areas in life, and not just British society, but elsewhere as well. There's so many areas that still needed real progress, and and there's still progress to be made. Yeah, I mean, sport at that time was was still going for its evolution. I'd say so. You you know, 2006, so 2003, the men had just won their World Cup. Um, I remember there was the, the 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 bus through central London, the amount of fans that there were, you know, it was brilliant, and it was, and they and they truly deserved everything they got after that. And then you think three years after going to our first, well, going to my first World Cup, that the assumption, and I, and maybe I was just naive, that um, the assumption would be, I, w- I didn't think we were going to have anything like the men had, but I just assumed, I just felt there was going to be a, a, an amazing World Cup setting, you know hearing the song uh, World in Union being played, these beautiful stadiums and and it was it, not saying it was the opposite, but it was just like it was it just wasn't didn't fulfill my expectations. It just showed that there wasn't the, the money wasn't in the game and, and especially out in Canada the, the finances wasn't there. So our World Cup games are played on, you know, um, just a, a university pitch with temporary um, stands <laughs> it was if that if that's what you'd call them there wasn't a lot of people watching but every moment felt like it was special still so I didn't want to take that away even then when I got there I remember thinking oh it's not what I expect I didn't want to be disheartened by it because maybe it had been ingrained in my mind and many of my other teammates minds that as a female rugby player you're just grateful you're like you're just grateful that there is a there is even a world cup you're just grateful that you've got a hotel that you don't have to pay for or kit that you don't have to pay for you're just grateful that a, a tv has been a tv has been willing to take on some of that broadcasting or some of the games so sky sports um covered our our final in that in that tournament so we were just great like that that's why i sum up really the first four year cycle of my career I was just grateful and I didn't, you don't want to moan because it is what it is. But then now you reach a stage where many athletes, many female athletes are not going to take the whole, I'm just grateful anymore. Actually, we demand and we require much more. I want to take you back to another high point, perhaps, of your career, which was when you became an MBE. And you, you might have been expecting or hoping to meet the Queen and you would have liked to have met the, to have met the Queen. Who wouldn't? But you were actually awarded your MBE by the Princess Royal, by Princess Anne. And you hadn't realised that she was a huge rugby fan. She's the mother-in-law of Mike Tyndall, but more importantly, her ties to Scottish rugby. And I, I was surprised that you didn't realise that because I, I grew up watching her 
you'd it be introduced to the players to you know for the Scot for the Scotland games. But maybe but you maybe you weren't into rugby at such an early age as as I was. But there was a very funny moment which made me smile, and that was laugh even was when you were introduced as Doctor Maggie Alfonsi to Princess Anne. And she asked you quite naturally what you were a doctor of. You slightly panicked. You were thrown by the question. You hadn't been expected it. And your answer was? I'm a doctor of rugby. That's what I basically told her. <laughs> and it's really, and, and to put it into context, so I've got, I've got some honorary uh, doctorates from, from universities. And it's just, you know, I've got these honorary doctorates because I represent I've, my services to rugby, basically. So every now and again, I might use the title doctor if I want to get a little bit more respect <laughs> in the world. So I was going for my MBA and I thought, why, not, why don't I just put doctor, you know, Maggie Alfonsi. Um, so when they when they called that out, I, I found it quite funny because that was the first thing she said to me. And when it comes to getting a, a, an MBA or any, any other um, sort of uh, title, you basically have three minutes with whoever is presenting you that um award i guess and uh she she yeah, she asked me you know what are you doctor of i panicked and i said i'm doctor of rugby and then but that's what happened i panicked again and even though i sort of knew she liked rugby i knew she was obviously passionate about it i just sort of said to her so do you like rugby then in a very patronizing voice and then she turned to me and said well i, well, I hope i like rugby because you know i'm the patron of scotland rugby union my my son-in-law is Mike Tyndall. He used to be the captain of the England men's rugby team. We had this long conversation. And then um, when it comes to you getting your MBE, once they're done with you, they basically stick their hand out and you shake it and then you curtsy and you just depart. And she pretty much <laughs> listed out all the things which make her why she should be good at rugby or why she should like rugby. And then she stuck her hand out and then told me to go. Well, she didn't tell me to go. The hand basically implies you must go. I'm done with you. <laughs> um, so it was basically a very awkward three minutes of my life. But uh, I, I laugh at it because, you know, I, now whenever I'm watching Scotland, she is there. She is you know, fully, fully um, supportive of the Scottish team and, 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 and is a real passionate fan of rugby. On a more serious note, neither of us are medical doctors. And I'm certainly not an expert on concussion. But I do want to ask you this, because from what little I've read about this, it seems that concussions may be more of an issue for women and also that there may be greater risks of long-term brain damage, you know, early-onset dementia, for example, perhaps, for women than men. Now, I, I don't know where we are at with the science on this, but I find that really challenging because and I find it challenging in the men's game as well. So I absolutely have loved rugby or, you know, or, for as long as I can remember almost. But I now watch games through different eyes because I worry about the players. And I know that world rugby is taking steps to try to make the game safer. And, and part of that is the red cards that we're, that we're seeing for, for high tackling. But it, it, it sort of, I find it challenging in the women's game as well, because at a time where we want to you know, wouldn't it be brilliant to bring in more girls to get involved in rugby if there is this sort of spectre of concussion looming over the women's game as well as the men's game? That's difficult, isn't it? It is. And actually going into this Rugby World Cup, um, I remember having quite a few conversations with people about the worry around head contact, concussion, longevity of players, you know, health and well-being. And that's a worry because we've never really 
you know, we are consistently always trying to put our sport in a positive light. And it's a great sport. Like it's, you know, for many of us, it's changed our lives, isn't it? You know, and I, and I love watching it. Um, but now the big focus has turned to, right, we need to do more research. And a lot of the research that's been done on head injuries has, has been predominantly around men. And now World Rugby in particular are, are launching a lot of their research around you know female rugby players and actually the impact on head in uh, head in uh, contact and its, it's long term effects. So I guess all I can say right now is world rugby rugby in itself is doing everything it possibly can to make sure it's safe for its participants and we you can tell that now when watching you're watching a World Cup and you're seeing any sort of head um head contact still like controversial at times because we're not seeing cards given for some instance but once there is a, 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 a what is a dangerous level of head contact it's been it's been reviewed it's been looked at and a card is being given i mean the focus has been there's got to be around grassroots rugby that's that's where a lot of my focus comes into play and there has been a change now in the tackle height which is coming into the community game, which isn't easy for any player or any coach to have to try and adjust. But the focus has been about how do we make our players safe? And research has shown, you know, consistent contact with head isn't a good thing. So we need to do what we can to try and reduce that. So there, there are a lot of um, things being put in place to make it safe. But it's hard, isn't it? How do you change a sport that is about contact? That's what people love about it. But how? Do you, but we still need to make sure it's safe for, for our participants to play it. And there's this worrying issue of, I don't know exactly what they call it, but sub-concussive incidents where it's the sort of, con it's the repetitive contact with the body, force on the body that doesn't, as I understand it, necessarily have to involve the head. And I may be wrong about all this. And this is difficult waters for me as a non-expert to enter, but I think it's important to try to address it. And I suspect that if rugby is going to survive and thrive, because as you say, it is a contact sport, there's going to have to be a tolerance of some degree of risk. Yeah, you, you are right. I mean, we, are, we will reach a point where people will go, so when do we stop? When do we stop and say this, we have to just except that this is the level of contact that a player will undergo when they play. I guess there's a lot of, you know, if we talk about the variables in terms of contact and where it, things can be reduced. So the amount of times people have contact or head contact or head collisions, you know, in training, because we just watch games, don't we? we just, the assumption is all about the games, but, you know, we have to take in consideration um, the amount of playing people have during the week that could also you know add up to a lot of head injuries so there's a real emphasis on supporting coaches supporting clubs on managing players training time the the training intensity uh, and almost contact with head it's the same like with football when they talk obviously around headering the ball how do we manage that how do we reduce the amount of times that is done during the week in comparison to maybe what's happening on the weekend and then another variable is actually thinking about what can what can rugby do to advance advance technology. So, you know, we talk about gum shields. Gum shields is is, is a proven uh, piece of equipment that helps also take away the the pressure that comes from a, a big contact sometimes through the gum shield. So it's really important to have decent gum shields. So there's lots of technology that's been done, lots of research been done to understand how can we reduce head contact how can we 
um, reduce the likelihood of it happening, the impact of it. So there's so much. I mean, like you, I'm not really an expert in it, but I know that work's been done to make sure that we know as much that can support our players, regardless of gender as well, but also the level of which the person is playing. Certainly as a parent now, I feel a responsibility to do my own research as well and to you know, to, to get a, a, as, as much information as I can. I mean, my son is only 11 months old. I played rugby as a boy and at university and you know, a big part of me would, would love him to play. But when the time comes or ahead of the time coming, I'm going to, I'm going to look into things myself so that as a dad, I can feel confident or as confident as I can be that I'm making the right decision one way or, or the other. Can we talk about physicality in a, in a sort of, more positive light just for a moment because physicality was such an important part of your game you were known as a fantastic and formidable tackler and you you won 74 England caps which by the way included seven record-breaking seven consecutive six nations championships you scored what was it 24 tries 25 tries 28 28 tries I like to add on a number every time (laughs) as it goes along 28 tries. It's an incredible achievement. So you were by no means, I was going to say, only a tackler. I mean, tackling is a vitally important part of the game. But tackling was perhaps your superpower. And, I mean, you became known as Maggie the Machine. Talk to us briefly about the fun of contact, the thrill of knocking someone back in a game of rugby, the, the role that your physical strength and power played in your game. So what I loved about rugby when I played it, and I still love it now, it, it, it is the physical side. Because growing up uh, as a young girl from North London, council state, very deprived, it felt like I couldn't be free. And I played lots of sports. So I played netball, did hockey. And there was always an element of, you know, when I played uh, netball, I was a goal defence. You can only go up to a certain part on the court. <laughs> um, so I felt like I was restricted there. When I played hockey, I was in the I was in the goal, so I had all the padding and I couldn't really get out and do do anything. So I had to stay in the goal. So I felt there was an element of I was always restricted. But then when I came to rugby, it was like, here's a ball, run as fast as you can. Um, okay, you haven't got the ball, go and find the person with the ball and just tackle them, take them down. And that that element of freedom, there was no restriction in what you what you did, really made me feel like I, I came alive you know and that's why whenever I watch the sport now what I absolutely love about rugby is a, a, a big tackle you know I love it when a big tackle comes in uh, like two like two did on the weekend <laughs> um uh, I can't remember what player did it to uh, Argentina player did it to but he did it and you could see I mean I was watching it on the sea in relation to the telly and people in the studio the whole the whole everyone went whoa that was that was a big tackle you know a big tackle can have such a an an infectious effect to everyone wherever they are watching something like that so that's what I love about it it can you know people love a big tackler and and it, and also people can empathize and relate to it so being a, a woman playing rugby sometimes people don't emphasize that they kind of go I don't get you know do women do you play with the same ball do you do this do you do that they always ask that question but when they see when they see me tackle they're like there's like there's no conversation there's no there's no sort of kind of question it's like that's a big tackle regardless of who you are that's a that's a big tackle and I and I and I respect that and you got a lot of respect didn't you from tackling Owen Farrell when he was playing was he at the, at the Saracens Academy and you were 
it, it was thought that it might be a good idea for, for female rugby players to play with a, academy men's sides or trained with them and Owen Farrell ran towards you and you tackled him and you pulled you you dragged him down to the ground Eddie Jones then involved with Saracens went on of course to be England coach now Australia coach he was impressed he was yeah so I was part of the Saracens Academy set up so they're basically they were is the men's academy but there were 18 at the time but they were they were I mean god they were men. <laughs> they were massive, and um, three of us England players were female, women players were allowed to be part of the setup with the boys' academy because it was about developing our skills, especially at the top level. We wanted to win a World Cup, and I went to the Saracens Academy, and and actually at the the, the one session that I attended, I attended several sessions, but this one night, by chance, Eddie Jones was down, who was the director of of uh, rugby at Saracens at the time, and like you said, went on to become England coach, etc. And um, he was like, that's fine. Maggie can attend the session, but she has to do everything that the boys do. Nothing, she can't pull out on anything. And I was, and I love that because that was the mindset. And that's what he's like, isn't he? He's that kind of character is like, you know, there's no, there's no hiding place. So I got on with it and it was a, it was a brutal session. And what I loved about it, it was brutal. But in the, in the academy at the time was the likes of Jamie George, you know, he's an England hooker at the moment. George Cruz, who used to play for the England team, is not any, anymore, and obviously Owen Farrell. So, and I remember we were doing this attacking drill where it was like a two. It was, it was basically it ended up being like a two v one, and it was very simple. You know, all Owen Farrell, all he could have done, he could have made the pass, but actually he took me on, and I'd expect him to take me on because that's the kind of character that he is. But um, I remember in my head thinking, I've got to make the tackle. I've got to make the tackle. Make the tackle. <laughs> that's all that was running through my mind, and. Thankfully, I got the shoulder in and made a tackle. I mean, it was a good tackle. I guess over time through media, it's turned into a big dump tackle and landing him on his bum. But I'll take that. You know, I'll take that. But it's it's what. But what that that I say that in a book because it sort of defines me in the sense that in my life and and especially in the world of media, you can't take a backward step. Um, regardless of who's going to come at you, who's going to criticise you or challenge you, you've got to front up and you've got to take it on and. And, you know, once you do it, you feel confident that you'll do it again and then you do it again and then you get more confident and you own who you are. So, I, yeah, I, I owe, I mean, Owen Farrell probably won't remember it, but um, it's, still remind, it's, still, it's still a day in my life that I will always remember. You've, de- you've developed a bit of a reputation for tackling famous men. Jack Whitehall's another, the comedian. Poor Jack Whitehall, yeah. So um, uh, during the 2015 Men's Rugby World Cup, we did a, a, a few adverts with Samson, which was really cool, actually. It was very much an advert around making fun out of rugby. And through these adverts, it obviously grew, it grew interest into the sport. So, yeah, as part of this advert, one of the adverts was I basically was with Lawrence Dalio, Martin Johnson, both of you play for England, and then uh, Jack Whitehall. And basically, Lawrence Dalio says, right, J- Jack Whitehall, um, I want you to tackle Maggie, Maggie Alfonsi, and just show us how a tackle would be. And he and basically Jack Whitehall turns to Lawrence Dalio and says, I don't know how you were brought up, Lawrence, but I'm not tackling a lady. That will not be happening. And um, so then Lawrence goes, OK, Maggie, how about you you tackle Jack? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So then basically Jack Whitehall comes at me and I make a big tackle. And yes, I know it's it's for an advert. It was quite funny, though, because when we was doing the, the footage, I had to tackle Jack Whitehall about 20 times and we only showed one on the on the on the, on the advert. But uh, fair play. He took the hit. I mean, he likes his rugby. He's into it. But I was like. Because I was surrounded by a lot, a lot of the, you know, Lawrence Dale was watching it, 
Martin uh, Johnson was watching and all the we had lots of like rugby lads around. I was like, I've got to make a big tackle. I mean, I don't want my reputation to to go down here. I've got to put put a big tackle in. And, and fair play, Jack Whitehall. He 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 um he he took it well. Um, but it was a good advert. It went viral actually during that period. I want to ask you a sort of slightly I don't know whether the right word would be puerile question, but it's a it's a question that derives from genuine curiosity. So I've interviewed. Jessica Ennis Hill a couple of times and I know that if I were to run against her she would absolutely thrash me I'm not slow but she would absolutely thrash me now what I'm curious about and and this sort of feeds into what you've been saying about the Owen Farrell tackle and and tackling Jack Whitehall though it's no surprise to me that you were able to tackle him very comprehensively but I'm a six foot three guy and I've probably dropped down to about 16 stone now, down from about 17. So lost a bit of weight, which is good. But if I were to, and I've played rugby, not at a very high level, but I've played a bit of sevens. I was in my college team at Cambridge at 15s. And, you know, I'm quite strong. Like I, I managed 115 kg on the bench press once, I think. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a sort of decently strong bloke, put it like that. And I know how to play sport up to a point. What would happen, Maggie, if I took your place or took the place of a flanker, let's say, in a England rugby game against France? Put me into a, a women's rugby game and ask me to play 80 minutes at international level. What would happen to me? So, Matt, what they'll do, they'll probably run around you. <laughs> Just to, Look, Matt, I know you're quick. So the, the, the thing is, like over time, and it's always interesting, especially when you have this conversation about genders as well. Well, but what's what's interesting right now when we look at women's rugby in particular, they are specimens. These are fantastic athletes. So uh, they're 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 quick, they are strong, and they they've got good rugby smarts. So Matt, do you know what you would actually? I think I think it sounds like I feel like you've been modest. I bet you you're a, a top sprinter, top tackler, top you know bench press, 150. That's pretty good. Um, so uh, look, if I if 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 we were to say in the women's game right now, I think yeah, you'd you'd probably you'd probably stand out a little bit. Yeah, you would. Um, but then, would I get I hurt? Would I get 115 kg, not 150? Would I get hurt, Maggie? And would I? What would ha- like? Would I? Would I be able to sort of survive it physically without getting my bones broken? Do you know what? I think you would get hurt in against certain women. So you know, if I talk about. Are some of our forwards nowadays? I mean, they're absolute, they're they're absolute beasts in the sense of their stature, their size, and what they can what they can bench press and squat as well. That's why even now when I watch and I'm I'm pundit on some of the games, with men's and women's, I look and I think I'm so pleased I'm not playing because I know I would get absolutely injured. Um, so I think you'd ho- hold your own, Matt. But there are some big, solid, strong, strong women out there, and especially in the in the front row, who I would I'd hate to tackle now. Another question, and I was sort of wondering whether I should ask this question or not. It's always good when you're trying to ask questions that might be a bit controversial to put the shoe on the other foot. So it made me think, I wonder, do women think, what's it like being a bloke playing sport? What happens if you get hit in the private parts? Like, how do you manage that as a man sort of thing? Something has I've been wondered about watching women's rugby is, does it hurt when you get hit in the chest? Or is it just the same as being a guy in that sense? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question, to be honest. Um, I think 
I've because I've always wondered with blokes. I think, oh, does it hurt? But then again, blokes just get on with it. You know, they just get on with it. I, I, every now and again, they probably they probably you know squint if they get a good hit there, but they crack on with it. And, I, and that's I'd say it's the same with us as women. Like generally, you just don't think about it. You just get on with it. Um, but there there might be an occasion where you get a really big hit where you go, oh, I felt that. Uh, so generally, um, and this is from my own perspective, I don't even, I don't notice it, don't think about it, you're unaware of it. That, I guess that's why, that's why we play it in, in a way, because you don't, you don't feel or notice any big impact to areas where you, where people may assume that that's where you'll be quite sensitive. So to answer your question, no, I've, I, I, I don't feel anything. I'm not, never aware of it. But I guess it's the same when, when a with, with with men as well you if you do get hit there you notice it but generally you just you, you crack on which gave you more satisfaction a dominant hit a dominant tackle or a try tackle it's got to be a tackle because i loved it i absolutely loved it um if I, I think when when you hit the sweet spot it's like if you play golf when you're on the driving range if you've got the driver and you hit the hit the ball and it just goes just you know a distance and you can hear the almost the ping when you hit the ball that's a great feeling so to be able to get that i think is always quite special when so you're for me, it's got to be a tackle when you're standing there ready to go live on ITV for a big World Cup game in front of an enormous audience, do you feel more or less nervous than you used to feel standing on the pitch ready to go in a big international game? I would say standing ready to speak live on air is probably the most nerve-wracking um, experience ever because you just feel like you're Oh, I don't know. You feel like your heart is about to jump out <laughs> in the sense that you're thinking about what you're going to say, how you're going to deliver your words. But also you've got to contain the enjoyment of being able to work on the telly and talk about a game that you really enjoy. So, look, playing rugby was always great. But the difference was that I could control my actions and make an attack. But when you're broadcasting live on air, anything can happen. And also you're working with a team of other people who you're not quite sure what they're going to say so you're just reacting and responding it's 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 almost the adrenaline high is is, is amazing but at the same time very nerve-wracking we've had to adapt because you've had to change location because our interview has spilled over beyond our allotted hours so you've had to leave the room you're in and now you've had to put your headphones on because you're in a communal area so the audio quality may have gone down but we are being both resilient and adaptive and I wonder with you in your career how important resilience and being adaptive have been? Um, I would say it's been very significant really so in terms of being resilient being able to almost pick yourself up after experiencing failure or you know losses and also experiencing injuries that's been almost the the root of my whole career and, and and it's something that I still sort of carry through now having to make sure that I'm able to not let things affect me even if I don't experience the success that I was hoping for how do you pick yourself up and I've tried to stay with that that, that mindset you know it's not the end of the world if you're not successful it's not the end of the world if you don't have the best game you just have to to get on with it and think about how do you find strength from the good things that you have done so yeah it's something that has almost defined my career. And I guess going through World Cup losses and, and loss of form and non-selection has definitely contributed to having this strong, resilient bank. Do you find it easier to motivate other people when you're being a motivational speaker, for example, than 
to motivate yourself or in order to motivate other people do you have to have been able to motivate yourself so i find it a lot easier motivating others um and i get energy from that so when i motivate others they get motivated so then all of a sudden you feed off that but i i am incredibly driven you know so i I, I've got I like to think that I've got this built-in level of motivation this drive that I always want to keep moving forward and then through motivating others I, I feed off that that level of energy that they also have so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a two-prong approach isn't it really I've got motivation within myself but I also love absolutely love motivating others and actually seeing the benefits from other people's experiences and, and what they've achieved along the way. What about Maggie Alfonsi, the coach? Are we going to see you coaching either in the men's game or the women's game? Matt, absolutely not. <laughs> I used to work at the rugby football union. I was a coach there, but you reach a stage where you go, it's almost like playing. You know when you when you're done, and you know when it's not for you. And coaching is is full on. It's it's a it's a hard place to be you get criticized like you would do in any sort of role but at the same time it almost I found it quite quite draining because it's it's the weekdays it's the weekends as well and then when you've got a family it's quite hard to try and balance all so I I would love to think that I could coach at a high level now but right now I think finding the time is (laughs) is a challenge hence why I love working in broadcasting because it's like you're you're, it's like you're coaching people through the telly do you feel that you are a trailblazer you're black you're a woman you're gay you had a disability at birth with having a a club foot you're working class I mean you can be and I'm sure are an inspiration to a, a lot of people do you feel that and does that come with a responsibility so when I set out to I guess play the sport and you know try and achieve the the goal of playing for England there was never any element of thinking I'm a role model or I'm breaking down doors or barriers. But actually now that I'm, I'm living this life where working in broadcasting in particular, I do feel like I'm a bit of a trailblazer, but I try not to let it put pressure on my shoulders because I think that's when you start to think I am now feeling the weight of expectation. And, and actually I like thinking that I'm just doing what I do without thinking about the impact that's having but I'm pleased that it's having an impact you know there's visibility hopefully people see me and they might go oh that person or she resonates with me she's either same background same same gender sexuality um race whatever it may be they feel like they can see them in me and that's that's really positive because then all of a sudden they feel like there's a place for them so it's nice to know that I'm a trailblazer but I think what's more important it's nice to know that the visibility of what I'm doing is hopefully inspiring someone out there to think that I can do the same or I can exceed what I'm doing. How important has your mother been and your upbringing been in forging the Maggie Alfonsi that went on to become a World Cup winning rugby player? And how important is having started your own nuclear family yourself? My mum has been um, brilliant in the sense that she's been patient, disciplined, <laughs> um, understanding, empathetic. And I know it's not been easy because single parent having to manage my behaviour, um, but also being able to be a parent to give me direction, but also that level of support and encouragement. But she has been 
almost a consistent rock that has backed me. Didn't necessarily like rugby, didn't understand why women would want to play the sport, but now she is a huge fan. I mean, it made me laugh because she watched the whole first opening weekend of the Rugby World Cup and uh, was telling me all about the, the red cards <laughs> and the yellow cards. But that's what I love about her. She's been a huge support for me. And I have taken on some of the things that she's done as a parent and, and implemented it to how I am as a parent. You know, there's always good bits, and there's always bad bits. But what's pleasing is that I know that as a parent, I must always be there <laughs> for my kids. And regardless of who they are, what they do, I'm, I want to give them a level of encouragement, but also guidance. But let them be free to make their own mistakes. And we've run out of questions, but you talk in the book about the fights you got into as a, a girl. I mean, there was a fight that you described with a boy when you were both 13. You ended up being friends, but you had to prove yourself on your estate or that's what you felt you had you had to do back then and it's such an interesting story your mother had come from Nigeria circumstances had dictated that and she ended up as you say bringing you up on her own and it's a really remarkable tale it's a, it's a really remarkable story your story and there is so much that people can be inspired by and well, I mean, one of the things that I've been fascinated by, and maybe I'll cheat by asking this as a bonus question, I've read that you could have been, you know, you could have qualified to be an, a Paralympian because of your disability. So explain to us, if you will, just to finish, how, how you managed to be a 74 cap international rugby player, having been born with a club foot. So, yeah, not many people might know what club foot is. It's basically one or both your feet are turned in. And when I was born, my right foot was completely turned in. So I had an operation when I was young to straighten it. But it's been, uh, it's been a lot of my childhood, it being corrected to make sure that I didn't have any complications. And what people don't really appreciate, it, it was a challenge because through having a club foot, you have hamstring problems, you have back problems, you have knee problems. And I've had the right support to enable me to be able to be the best athlete that I can be. And even now, like I work um, as an ambassador for the Steps charity, which works with people with lower limb conditions like clubfoot. And the way that I got to be in the best athlete that I could be was the fact that I had the determination, the motivation. And, and, and again, I seek the right support. So you touched on it there. I could have actually gone on to represent and be a Paralympic athlete because there there is a lot of athletes that have, have that condition who have, have um, competed at that level but I guess because I had done so much around trying to sh strengthen my 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 calf improve the range of movement in my foot for some uh, good reason I've been able to progress and become an England rugby player and, and there's been many other athletes who've done the same so I, I kind of like to think that I had early adversity but I overcame it and I was still managed to go on to play for England and represent my country 74 times but I still had challenges but with the right support around me I was able to perform. Maggie Alfonsi has been brilliant asking you 20 questions or 21 questions thank you so much for spending time with me and your book is out winning the fight and people can get it in bookshops and online right? That's correct you can get it on Amazon, Waterstones, any good bookshop but thank you so much for Matt for having me on board really have enjoyed speaking to you. I'm really looking forward to seeing you cover more of the big games ahead and, and looking forward to you actually being out there in France as well in the later stages. I can't wait. I'm not the heat though. I'm not looking forward to the heat, but I can't wait to watch some of the rugby and be there pitch side.